0: in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph dual cassette, before you could get everything on the internet, but some things ain't made it there yet, mixtape, line in, line out, if you don't have a line, hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine, here's an accidental slice
1: of time welcome to Gen X mixtape a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them this is part two of 80s two hit wonders where Alan and I will be curating side B of a mixtape featuring artists who charted exactly twice on Billboard's top 40 between 1980 and 1989 welcome back hey howdy I didn't I didn't get a chance to check on the Genesee but I will do that I promise. <laughs> Folks, if you listened to last week, uh, we were questioning whether Genesee, and don't ask us how we got there. You have to listen to the episode. Right. Uh, if Genesee is still being sold, and if it is, I vowed to buy some, and we would uh, share some on the episode, and I didn't get around to that, so we are sharing a little bit of, of, of bourbon here on the show. Um, uh, I, high class. I, I prefer the bourbon. We need but cigars, <laughs> but my wife would kill me.
2: Yeah. Well, indoors, <laughs> especially, yes. Um, no, it's... It, uh, it's been a lot of fun listening to that first first side.
1: Yeah, yeah, because I'm the one that kind of was
2: embarrassed. Well, I'm not even just talking... That was great, but I'm not just talking about that. No, it was a fun show. It was, it was a fun show. So many mentioned songs, too. Yes. That mentioned playlist is going to be huge this time.
1: And thanks again, uh, Wally Pleasant, for giving us permission to use um, your song from your 2018 album, Happy Hour, a mixtape as our new theme song. And I'm just really stoked about that. Like I said last week, I, it feels like... We commissioned him to write it. That's how perfect the song is. And so uh, last week, um, if you didn't make it through the entire episode, uh, we played the entire song at the end, and we're going to do the same um, on every episode. So I, I encourage you to listen to the entire song because each verse is just perfect.
2: It really is. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, I'm so grateful he allowed us to, to, yeah. to use yeah. it. I'm still kind of in shock that we have a theme song. By Wally Pleasant. So, but not only by but Wally a real, Pleasant, yeah, but, a, but but a real theme, theme song. song that is so specific to what we do right you know, it's just it not our, not our
1: royalty free <laughs> song which was kind of cool it was we, kind of a surf rock thing yeah
2: I, that's what I said when, you know from day one I said let's do something Tarantino-esque and you yeah. know then we found the, the well
1: originally rock. we talked about doing uh, two of us from the Beatles which would have been perfect I but, would have been
2: perfect yeah but,
1: but uh, we, we didn't go there right well, respect well. copyright laws yep so, uh, I doubt Sir Paul was going to... Oh, I don't... i don't, a, I'm not going to get in hold of Sir Paul. <laughs> oh Correct. And he doesn't own the rights anymore anyway, so it wouldn't be through him.
2: Is it still Michael Jackson? Or well, is it his estate? Or, I don't know. It's I don't proposing. know if they've, they've been sold elsewhere. Yeah. You, if they were, you'd think that McCartney would have purchased them
1: back. Yeah, you'd think. You
2: know? um, yeah, no, it's it's going to be another fun mix. I'm, I'm just as excited for Side B as I, I was last week for Side A, so it's going to be a lot of great nostalgia coming coming your way.
1: Well, so, let's jump right in then. You got it. Uh, I'm full of surprises uh, this episode, um, including last week. It's the first part of the episode. Uh, it shows the Scorpions, and I'm going to start off with Quiet Riot.
2: I loved Quiet Riot. I'm sorry. I, I just did.
1: <laughs> I did too, and I loved, in the early 80s, I loved these bands that, that maybe later on would have been considered hair bands. Maybe they would have felt the pressure to put on the makeup and and so forth, like like that's kind of what happened to kiss right kiss was huge in the in the 70s early 80s was was pretty tough for them commercially and then when the hair bands um kind of basically did kiss you know not as good but did kiss that's when they took off their makeup and, and tried to fit into to that crowd you know right and granted the irony is they didn't really put on the motley Crue type makeup they just went you know just straight um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's just glam rock, and that was the thing. Um, but I have a feeling that Quiet Riot might have been pressured to fall into that, too, had they hit a little bit later. But yeah, I think bands so. Bands like the Scorpions and Quiet Riot, these Van Halen, these early 80s, late 70s, early 80s rock bands are just, just hard rock, you know? Yeah. Some even consider Quiet Riot metal, and, and kind of like the Scorpions that came out of the L.A. metal scene. But I just see them as hard rock.
2: I agree. I don't see them as metal. Yeah, although, you know, Metal Health being one of their hit you know well-known songs I don't know if yep. it's the other hit or
1: not I'm choosing I'm choosing come on feel the noise okay. by quite right uh, from 1983 from like you just mentioned the album uh, Metal health. Actually, had this. I, I borrowed this one from a friend. My dad had just, you know, you mentioned he worked at Radio Shack on the weekends, and so he would bring home all sorts of contraptions. And this is right about the time he brought home two different cassette decks, and he used a RCA plug to um, connect them, so I could actually dub tapes, you know, right. without having without having to put a, a sign on the door that says "Please be quiet," <laughs> and I was playing, you know, <laughs> the old-fashioned way of doing it. And I remember um, him just kind of taking a look at the cover uh, when he was helping me dub this. And of course it has this kind of macabre image of this institutionalized and restrained individual wearing this Jason-esque metal, like actually made out of metal mask, revealing these two crazy eyes underneath. And I just thought yeah. it was really cool.
2: Yeah. I, I owned the album. Um, and yeah, I, I used to look at that cover and I, I just, all I thought was Jason. Yeah.
1: You know, yeah. 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 Stuff of nightmares. Um, but yeah, there's the, the other, let's go back to the beginning here. So Slade was kind of this hard rock band from the early 70s. They were more popular over in Europe. And I'm not sure if the producer was just a big Slade fan or what, but he came to the band. The band had been around uh, for a while in, in L.A. and hadn't really crossed over to commercial success. And he wanted them to do a cover of the Slade song called Come On, Feel The Noise and the band wasn't having it. They they didn't particularly care for Slade, they didn't particularly care for uh, the song, and so to appease the producer, they played it as awfully as they could, so they wouldn't be able to use it. Now, I don't know if they went back later, because it, it doesn't sound awful to me. Uh, <laughs> no, it actually... It sounds pretty good. But that, yeah, they, they didn't want it, but of course that became um, their, their their first big hit. Um, Ten years later than this late hit, this one went to number five in the U.S. So again, number five for a really, really hard rock song in the early 80s in in 83 was surprising. And then they had another hit, which was uh, Bang Your Head, Metal Health, um, subtitled, which came from the same album and went to number 31. The other single that I was surprised, this is one of those that surprised me. um, The song that I thought would have hit the top 40, but it didn't crack the top 40, was uh, Mama, We're All Crazy Now. And which was also a Slade song, and I remember when that song came out, I kept thinking, well, "Are they just like a Slade, Slade cover band?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> because two of their three hits that I knew were Slade songs, but that one never actually cracked the top forty. Uh, the band was here we go. The band was formed in 1973, so they've been around okay. quite a bit. Um, by Randy Rhodes, yeah, that Randy Rhodes. He was part of Quiet Riot. A lot of people don't know that. Was he really? He left the band in 1979. Okay. So, he wasn't on board when Quiet Ride became commercially viable. Gotcha. So, that's why a lot of people don't realize he was, he was an original member of the band. Of course, Randy Rhodes eventually went on and paired up with Ozzy Osbourne before his tragic death in a plane crash in 1982. Um, but anyway, after Rhodes left in 79, Quiet Ride continued without him uh, and then found their commercial success shortly after. I love this song. In fact, I, I, I it, it hit my threshold where I actually spent money on the single. I had I had the 45 before I dubbed my friend's version of the entire album, and um, yeah, it was just it's just one of those times where the record company and the producer knew what they had and they knew that they needed to have something commercial to help them. Kind of, I talked about last week how Kiss that they felt needed KISS needed to write a song like Rock and Roll All Night because that's their that's their signature. It's a song that represents what they are as a band. So I would say, Come on, Feel the Noise, even though it wasn't originally written by Quiet Riot, is their signature song because it really kind of personifies what they are as right. a band.
2: Well, and the song is just so... I, lyrically, it's just so freeing, yeah. you know? So you think I got an ugly face. Right? <laughs> I, I got no worries, you know? It's just... I don't know.
1: Girls rock your boys. Yes. As a ten-year-old, I wasn't sure exactly what that meant.
2: Uh, <laughs> now yeah. I know they were yes. being poetic. <laughs> um, yeah, there there are nice ways to say the things you want, I suppose. Um, no, I've I've always loved this song. I I've always I like I said I owned the album. It was the only album by Quiet Riot I ever purchased, but I I played it constantly. Um, so no, it's a great choice. Love it. Um, but that is, it's too. Hard rocking numbers from you, for, yeah. this, for this two-part episode, and I
1: love those songs, so I can still be a fan of, of hard rock. You um, know, excuse me, isolated pockets. You know,
2: yeah, no, it's cool. All right, well, for side B, my first choice, I went with comedian Eddie Murphy. Um, he had a single apparently it's a very cringeworthy title and i don't know that i've ever heard it called put your mouth on me
1: <laughs> i saw that i'm like oh my goodness so that, I remember hit, that.
2: that hit number 27 in 1989 so there there is his second of the two hit wonders um but i went with of course the 80s staple party all the time which hit number two in 1985
1: It's not one that I misheard, but it does sound a lot like potty. Potty all the
2: time. time. (laughs) Yeah,
1: it does. (laughs) I'm I'm not sure why they thought this was a good idea, because they did the same thing with Don Johnson, who was another two-hit wonder, by the way. Yep,
2: going to talk about him as part of this, actually.
1: Which we didn't include, but um, yeah, I'm not sure why, but I'm going to let you talk about it, because I think he should have stuck with his movies and (laughs) stand-up.
2: Yeah, well, all right, So, so here we go. First of all, Eddie Murphy actually has had an extensive singing career. He really has.
1: Other than his Roxanne impersonation yes, for 48 yeah. Hours?
2: Uh, it's just not his biggest claim to fame, of course. Um, he did have the other Billboard Hot 100 hit single in 89, Put Your Mouth on Me, which I I should have listened to that before this episode. But I I'm just, afraid
1: to. <laughs> I, I
2: know it's going to be on the mentioned songs list, and I'm like, oh, I'll listen to it when the time comes. Cause I'm, it's
1: about CPR, I think.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure what it's about, so I'm, well, I have a few ideas. But with that, <laughs> I digress. Um, uh, besides the two solo music albums uh, that he has. He's also done some of the songs and films he's appeared in, such as the Shrek franchise, 1988's coming to America. He sings, uh, he, he's also provided vocals in odd places, uh, like the Saturday night live sketches, right. we Penub, you know, or good old buckwheat on Tice feet times. Right. <laughs> Feetimes times a Um, but, um, he also, uh, he backed for the bus boys, um, and, and he even appeared in Michael Jackson's video, Remember the Time. Hmm. But the first and probably only time that Murphy was ever taken seriously for his music, by the critical masses anyway, came when he starred in the 2006 movie Dreamgirls. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there, there he actually showed his chops and yep. proved that he, in fact, can sing. Uh, but party all the time. It now stands as a prime example of cheesy '80s music, you know.
1: The production, um, the um, range, everything. It about is it. all
2: synthesizered. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. Well, it, it, in the
1: first like minute and a half, is all. Yeah, it is synthesizer. The, the delay is vocal. It,
2: yeah, it's synthesizer to death, really, um, and it's incredibly repetitive. You know, it's just it's n- <laughs> it's not a good it's song. It's Not Shakespeare. No, uh, it's been ranked by both VH1 and AOL Radio on their worst songs list. Really. And it's uh, seen some remixes and covers in the late 2010s. Really? Yeah. As well as have gotten a nod in Weird Al Yankovic's Polka Party. Oh, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, understandably, Murphy had a hard time convincing people to take this song and, and his music career seriously. In 1982, don't forget, he released a novelty song called Boogie in Your Butt. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Forgot about and that. And of course, he's known primarily for his acting and his comedy, which in the 80s was very very raunchy, um, and a lot of it would not fly today, because...
1: Well, that's true of any community. It is,
2: yeah, yeah and times change. I don't fault Eddie Murphy for that. It's He was a product of the time. Um, but um, his secret weapon for this song was Rick James of Super Freak fame. Uh, James wrote, produced, and arranged party all the time, um, and that gave the song some music cred, Okay,
1: I, I can know. hear that as much as I don't like the song. Yeah. And I think it was probably misproduced. And, and I, I Eric mean, James is great. I think, I think it was just a commercial decision, yeah. frankly.
2: Oh, I agree. Yeah. Um, Murphy used to promote the song by exclaiming, how come every time I open my mouth, I'm supposed to say something funny? That's how he uh, would lead into the song. Uh, Eddie Murphy, though, here's what he did. He made it safe for 80s acting stars to record songs on the side. Because in '86, like you said, Don Johnson, uh, he hit number five with "Heartbeat," and then he charted again in '88 on a duet with Barbara Streisand called "Till I Loved You." And let's not forget Bruce Willis; he got into the action '87, had a number five uh, hit with "Respect Yourself," mm-hmm. which I still love. "Respect Yourself." Bruce Willis was a two hit wonder; he would be here instead of Eddie Murphy. Um, but you know, the lyrical content of this song it has always cracked me up. Uh, it's just so unusual considering Murphy's swagger and stature you know in the 80s because he sings about a girl who goes out all night sleeps with other guys even though he's the one buying her flowers and diamond jewelry but he just kind of rolls over you know and and it's not at all uh, what you would expect from his character I guess Um, because he he ends up basically asking her um, to to bring some love home to him if you will Um, not even asking her to quit the affairs. Um, The white guy who shows up in the control room in the video, if you remember the video, that's Les Garland. He was one of the founders of MTV. Uh, His appearance was a peace offering by Rick James, who had accused Garland of being racist when the network refused to play the Super Freak video in 1981. Uh, Garland's side of the story was that the Super Freak video was low quality and too explicit, and that MTV played very few black videos because they tried to stick with a rock format early on. Take that as you will. Um, Very few videos were made by black artists, you know, as record companies weren't funding them um, at the time. So the institutionalized racism was hitting black artists and black bands from every which way. Um, I don't care what Garland's excuse may be. I think MTV was incredibly... Racist.
1: No, race, race had, had something to do with it. Yeah,
2: it was uh, very much so. Yeah, Michael Jackson. It, it took Billy Jean to really break through the the barrier. Well, and to
1: say and to say that black artists aren't rock too. I mean, come on. Right. It's still we talked about this ad nauseum, but you know, with the Rock Hall and the, and the large umbrella that that is. Right. Yeah. It doesn't just include guitar based rock. Rock takes all forms, and R and B, and exactly hip hop,
2: uh, and funk, everything that fits that. Yeah, well, rock has been culturally appropriated mm-hmm. anyway. It was black music to begin. So, yeah, um, party all the time was a number one hit. Or no, I say, I take that back. It was a number two hit. It would have been a number one hit, except it got stuck behind Lionel Richie for three weeks. Say you, say me was in the number one spot and it prevented Murphy from reaching it. Uh, Party All the Time charted higher than any of Rick James's solo tracks. Really? Yeah. And despite his legend, um, Rick James never got higher on the Hot 100 than number 13. And that was for you and I in 78. Even the group he manufactured from his backup singers, the Mary Jane Girls, I don't know if you remember them, they outcharted him, reaching number seven with In My House. Rick James just... Uh, for all of his credibility and for you know his legacy and his influence, yeah, he did not score high on on Billboard, Billboard, Bill in his career. So
1: well, you answer my question. I said, why did they think this was a good idea? Well, if it went to number two, that that is why. explains it. Yeah. yeah,
2: I owned the forty five. I, I got you. Yeah, I gotta own up to it. I owned the forty five for party all the time. Um, I don't know. It, it at the time. Well, in my defense, I was. Nine years old when it came out, uh, I didn't have the ear for music I do now as a snob.
1: Well, yeah. I, th- I think I like. I think I probably liked the song to some extent, but I never taped it off the radio or bought the forty-five. So. Right.
2: Yeah. So, but no, I, I, there you go. Um, you know, generally as a rule, I think actors should stay away from the microphone, uh, out of the vocal booth, if you will. Um, there are very few that crossover. Actors well, that that I think sing well,
1: or you can do like the Kevin Bacon thing. I mean, he's got his band; it's a small right. band. He's having fun. He's not trying to hit the charts, you know. Right. He's just doing something he loves.
2: Yeah, well, that, that's that's different, though. I, that, when I think of all of the the actors turned singers, and it's it's all very deliberate on the part of record labels to try and make a quick sure. buck on on you yeah. know the the fan base. But uh, I would say we could do a an actor turned singer. Uh, Two part episodes on time, but that would be very painful to see <laughs> through. Be so I'm not going to do part. that to anyone, least of all ourselves. It is your turn. All right. So uh, I'm going to go with
1: Tenderness by General Public, 1984, from the album All the Rage. This is another one of my favorite 80s songs uh, right up there with not not quite as high as take on me but but really really high
2: I had forgotten all about this one yeah I, I just did in fact I saw the title and all I was thinking was Otis Redding you know try a little tenderness and but then I played it and I, I recognized it immediately yeah I just forgotten all about it well
1: I mentioned wall of voodoo last week um, I had a, a CD that came out sometime in the early 90s, um, right about the time where IS Records finally went defunct. And IRS Records, for those of you that don't know, was an American label that released a lot of the um, alternative bands, a lot of them from Europe. Not all of them, like REM and the Go-Go's, um, we're on IRS, but to me, as an alternative music fan, if I saw an album was on IRS, I knew I could take a chance on it. So anyway, I had this sampler CD they put out that uh, included, um, and I mentioned REM, included the Go-Go's, The Alarm, Oingo Boingo, Soft Cell, and then this song by General Public, so it was a great little mix.
2: That is a great mix.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow, okay. So this English New Wave supergroup, and they were a super group, um, General Public, um, took this song to number 27. Their other hit single in the U.S. was a cover of I'll Take You There from the Staples Singers, which made it all the way to number 22.
2: I don't think I've ever heard I'll Take You There by General Public.
1: You know what's funny? When when I heard later on, probably, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s, when I heard the Staples Singers song, I'm like, that sounds really familiar. Like, why do I know this song? Well, that's why, because I do remember hearing General Public's version of it. Hmm. Uh, and the, it's not bad.
2: I mean, it's but not bad. If, if and when I give it a listen, maybe maybe it'll sound familiar. I just I can't yeah, place it. It's not bad at all.
1: The band consisted of Dave uh, Wakeling and Ranking Roger of the English Beat. Well, they were just the Beat in England. They called them the English Beat over here in America. Uh, Mick Jones of the Clash, Horace Panter of the Specials, and Stoker of Dexy's Midnight Runners. So it was it a really super was group. a super yeah. group. Now okay. Mick Jones would quit before the album's release, doesn't surprise me. No. <laughs> but he was included <clears throat> as well. John Hughes can be cited as a primary influence to their success in the US, featuring tenderness in not only Sixteen Candles, but it was also featured in Weird Science.
2: Was it? Yeah. I can't even play. I can't place it in another film. And
1: that's what's so great about John Hughes because he was an alternative music fan. Oh
2: yeah. yeah. And
1: he promoted, you know, New Order and, and the Smiths and, and just you name it. There were so many bands that he included and we talked about this on our podcast with Zabe on Friendship, that music that in the Midwest we weren't hearing. Right. In, unless it was on MTV, we weren't hearing this music. And so he would put those in the films. I think that might have been the first time I heard New Order was, yeah. was in Pretty, Pretty in Pink.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, even, even Simple Minds and OMD, you know, would we, yes. would we yeah. know Orchestra Maneuvers in the Dark if it was John Hughes? And Simple yeah, you know? no,
1: you're exactly right.
2: Um, so, yeah, I mean, he, he did wonders for, for, you know, bringing us music here in the state of Ohio. Um, yeah, no, I I, I dig it. I, I listened to it and really grew into it. I, I just, I had forgotten it's all got about
1: a, it. It's got one of my favorite pre-choruses in all pop music. It's just such a soaring melody that leads into the chorus. It just gets me every time. Yep.
2: No, great. Great tune. Better than my next one. <laughs> I've, I was never a huge Nina Cherry fan. Mm. Um, didn't I? Nothing against her. I, yeah, I just did, not a big. Yeah, fan just, of the not, song. just not a fan of the song. But it was huge. I'm talking, of course, about Buffalo Stance. It hit number three in 1989.
3: Would you stop the f***ing scratching and give me a beat? Ouch! Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce the hi hat. Go on. Hmm. That's good. Now, tambourine, right now.
2: The other hit, Kisses on the Wind, which hit number eight in 89. I hope
1: you're going to tell me what a Buffalo Stance I is. I am.
2: Good. I am going to tell you. Buffalo Stance, first of all, is a very funky track. It has an anti-pimp message, apparently. Uh, on her website, Sherry says that this song, quote, is about sexual survival. It's not a feminist record, she says. None of my songs are. But it is about female strength, female power, and female attitude.
1: So it's a feminist song.
2: Yes. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, Cherry originally recorded Buffalo Stance for the B-side of Morgan McVeigh's 1986 single, Looking Good Driving, which I have no memory of whatsoever. But Morgan McVeigh was the pop duo of Cameron McVeigh and Jamie J. Morgan. Um, Cameron McVeigh, that was Nina's boyfriend and eventually became her husband. Uh, He later produced All Saints and Sugar Babes and managed Massive Attack in the early days. Under the alias Booga Bear, he wrote much of the material that would comprise Raw Like Sushi, which is the Nina Cherry album from which the song comes. Three years later, Nina Cherry began working on her first solo album, and among the songs was a version of Buffalo Stance that had mutated via a remix by Bomb the Bass's uh, Tim Simon into an international hit. The song title, here you go, Dave, it refers to Buffalo. Which was a hip fashion and style collective formed by Scotsman Ray Petrie. Uh, Nina Cherry first encountered the collective during a plane journey to Tokyo for a modeling job, and the singer began a creative and personal relationship with one of the Buffalo crew, uh, photographer and musician Cameron McVeigh, and that continues to this day. That's what Cherry told Uncut magazine, anyway. So, yeah, Buffalo Stance, uh, it just refers to the walkway, if you were. Uh, oh, the walk, the, okay, yeah. the, the catwalk. The, the stance, oh, yeah. yeah, the stance would be the the posing, and Buffalo was a particular style uh, collective that, that was very popular at the time. Uh, Buffalo was obviously a reference to the Buffalo Collective, she says. It never had anything to do with Malcolm McLaren's Buffalo Gals. I don't know who Ma- Malcolm McLaren is, and I don't know the song Buffalo Gals. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. But apparently in 89, a lot of people thought that she was singing this in response to that other song going to have to give that a listen as well uh she says everybody gets that mixed up though buffalo is also a reference to being a survivor she says to being headstrong with horns on your head defense way uh defense your way through the ups and downs of life so.
1: I, I i think about two things i, th- I think about the uh <clears throat> the maga shaman or whatever that showed up in the Capitol on january 6th with this buffalo horn, right and now I want to go watch the movie um, Buffalo '66. Have you seen that oh, yeah. it's classic?
2: One of my favorite Christina Ricci films. And
1: I want some buffalo wings. I can go on here.
2: I'm, I'm already. <laughs> I'm always ready for buffalo wings. <laughs> I wouldn't mind doing a lunch chat while I'm recording here. Um, yeah, I, I never knew what the song was about, and to learn that it's just about basically modeling fashion. I'm like, eh, okay, okay, yeah. I'll, I'll take it. You know, it's a huge dance hit. I mean, like I said, it, it hit number three. It was it was a mainstay. on top 40 for a while
1: only thing I can come up with was if you I don't know cornered a, a buffalo where they have some type of defensive stance that yeah that's the only thing I can, so okay the modeling thing makes sense I guess
2: well, there you go
1: all right very good all right my next one is no more words by Berlin
2: this to take my breath away. I do too I, it's just a better song and so did the band
1: but we'll get there song came out in 1984 from the album Love Life this uh, N- LA New Wave band scored their first hit with this song charting number 23 um, but their giant number one hit would come two years later with Top Gun's Take My Breath Away yep. and that was just as big as a, of a single as you could could come up with yep. right. that year
2: I actually had no more words on 45 did you? Do you know it was on the flip side Crazy for You by Madonna, because both are tracks from Vision Quest.
1: I don't know why I said what because that's my next note. <laughs> <Is> it, <laughs> I yeah, knew I, the answer to that.
2: I, I actually bought it from Madonna for Crazy for You. Yeah. And then I flipped it because I was curious. because yep. I didn't see Vision Quest until years, years later. Yep. Yeah. Um, the song
1: appeared in the film Vis- Vision Quest and it was the B side to Madonna's Crazy yeah. for You single.
2: Yeah. When I when I flipped Madonna and, and heard No More Words by Berlin, I found I preferred that to Madonna's Crazy for You. I like I, them both. I, I, I like them both yeah. too. And I, I've I've always. Always had a, a soft spot for Madonna. I know she's she has a lot of haters out there, but um, now I love "Crazy for You." In fact, I think it's probably one of her very best songs. But "No More Words," I heard that and I was hooked. Yeah, yeah, you know, I was just hooked.
1: Yeah, and do you remember the video?
2: That I don't.
1: It was like a Bonnie and Clyde inspired conceptual video, which included car chases and, and shootouts. Really? Yeah, yeah. And then you had this, you know, sexy Terry Nunn under this 30 style black beret. And then on the album cover, or at least the single cover, she's got one of those hat veils coming over her face. It was a very 1930s gangster type vibe.
2: I don't remember this at all. Yeah, you
1: should look up the video. Yeah, good, I have to. It was good. Now, the band, however, split a year after Top Gun. And none, the lead singer, she felt the success of the song was good. That it would, it would catapult them to a global audience and they would just really take off. But the rest of the band hated the fact that their biggest hit was a song that they did not write. And okay. you can tell that. I mean, it's it's Berlin performing the song, but it really is not a Berlin song. Right. Kind of reminds me of Simple Minds, because they did not write Don't You Forget About Me for Breakfast Club. It was actually originally offered to Billy Idol, who turned it down. And so there's the irony, right? Both those songs, both, both um, Take My Breath Away and Don't You Forget About Me were the, were the biggest hits for those two bands the most commercial and yet the band both bands rejected it because it wasn't their music huh yeah so it's kind of it's one of those ironic it's kind of like how I feel when people like Carrie Underwood you know she she made it from American Idol probably would never hear of her if it wasn't for American Idol but I always think that just it shouldn't be it's not fair of me but it's a knock against her that she came from American Idol right
2: yeah and, um. well Carrie Underwood she I, I know the songwriter for her two of her biggest hits, Josh. You, you yeah. Are, yeah, yeah, yeah. my yeah. cousin Josh wrote before "Before He Cheats" and "Blown Away." Um, but I, uh, yeah, no, I agree with what you're saying. You, know, you hear that from a lot of bands, though. A lot of times, bands' signature hit is not the song that they right. enjoy. Singing. Well, yeah,
1: sure, but at least they they wrote it. I'm I'm sure Billy Joel gets tired playing piano, man. but right. that's, that's yeah. his signature song. True,
2: but I think of like the Rembrandts.
1: Oh is a good yeah, example. yeah, yeah! Because yeah.
2: the theme to Friends, they didn't write that song, right? You know, and it, it's it was their biggest. I mean, it was an international smash, but they hate the song mm-hmm. because they were very serious about their songwriting. Um, yeah, it's it's a common story in rock music, I think. So yeah,
1: well, that's a great. It's a great song. Um, definitely had to go with uh, no more, no more words. Say, had another song I really like. Didn't hit in the U.S. Um, hit in Europe was uh, the Metro. I never heard it. Yeah, it, I think it was eighty three, eighty two, or eighty three. Okay. And uh, I think I had that. That might have been. I want to say that might have been on the IRS sampler I had, but I'm not sure about that.
2: Okay. I um. Well, I have to go look that one up. Uh, the only two I know are their two right hit singles. So
1: yeah, it's got a cool, cool little keyboard riff um, rhythm to it. Nice. Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, I went. Uh, I went to Broadway for the next one. That's my thing. It is your thing. <laughs> In fairness, you know, we talked about this with the friendship episode. I used to teach theater. You know, I taught drama. I, I I have a a history in the theater.
1: Well, this is a this is a Andrew Lloyd Webber that I've never seen performed. Yeah, no, I've, I've never not, actually listened to the entire musical. So.
2: Yeah, I've, I've never I've never seen it either. Uh, the song actually, though, it comes from uh, the original movie soundtrack. Okay. Um, they made a movie of Chess. Yeah.
1: Okay, I'm gonna let you talk because yep. I'm confused now.
2: 1984, apparently. I've never seen the film. Huh. But um, yeah, One Night in Bangkok by Murray Head is the song that I've chosen. Bangkok, Oriental sitting in the city, don't know what the city is getting. The creme de la creme of the chess world in a show with everything. But it's Yul Time
3: flies, doesn't seem a minute since the Tyrolean spa had the chess bars in it. All change, don't you know that when you play at
0: this? no ordinary venue it's iceland or the philippines or hastings or, or this place when night <laughs>
2: It hit number three in 1984 uh, and it is it can be found on the Chess original movie soundtrack or of course you can simply go to Murray Head's Greatest Hits. I mean, you'll find it there as well. Uh, He didn't have many. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, his only other top 40 hit was Superstar, uh, which comes from the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm -hmm. Um, He played Judas in that uh, musical. And in 1969, he took the song Superstar to number 14. So he literally had to wait, what, 11, 15 years between his two and only two hits. Um, The song tells of the meeting of two great chess players, one Soviet, one American in Bangkok, which, of course, is the capital of Thailand. Um, Chess is a musical production uh, that uses a U.S.-USSR chess rivalry as a metaphor for the Cold War. But this song, uh, it just contains double entendres about the game of chess, really. Uh, compared to the Bangkok nightlife. The example often used is, I would invite you, but the queens that we use would not excite right, you. Right, right. Okay. Um, Chess was a, a musical that premiered in London's West End originally. Uh, the song was written for the 84 concept album, which was recorded well ahead of the production. And the album was very successful, considering it was from a musical. Uh, the album charted in the top 10 in the U.K., Uh, The album hit number 47 on the Hot 200 uh, here in the U.S., number one in Sweden. Another song from the album, I know him so well, it held the number one spot in the U.K. for four weeks in February of 85, being deposed by You Spin Me Right Round by Dead or Alive. um, But that was in the U.K. Um, And the Broadway production of Chess, it was heavily altered and ultimately unsuccessful.
1: Yeah, well, that explains why I didn't see it.
2: Yeah, um, huge in London. Um, You know, it it had a long run um, in London at the West End. But um, yeah, in the U.S. it did not do well.
1: That that song really confused me as a kid lyrically. In fact, I have a misheard lyric from this one that I can't discuss on air. (laughs)
2: That'll make for an interesting conversation. I'll tell you after the show.
1: Yeah, yeah, anyway.
2: Well, along with the rest of the songs from Chess, the music was written by Bjorn Oveason and Benny Anderson of ABBA. And Tim Rice wrote the lyrics. Uh, Rice has written for many film and theatrical productions, including very popular, uh, you know, Can You Feel the Love Tonight from The Lion King. A little over two minutes into this song, there's a flute solo that uses a really difficult flutter tongue technique it's similar to what you find on a lot of jet throw toll songs actually it was played by a swedish musician named bjorn jason lind uh murray head he is an actor he's been in several movies and stage productions he's barely out of the one hit winner category for that version of superstar but the best version of this do you remember the hangover Two? yeah Yeah. Mike Tyson performs this song. Oh, yeah, that's right. I only saw it one time, but Uh, yes. Which, if you've not seen the sequel to The Hangover, Hangover Part 2, it takes place mostly in in Bangkok, and Tyson appears as a surprise wedding guest, and he takes the stage near the end of the movie to perform One Night in Bangkok. Okay,
1: so I just learned something today. I always thought that was an Andrew Lloyd Webber composition. It was not, obviously. You just mentioned that. But um, Webber tried to get it produced i guess i'm just kind of glancing at an article here where he and his um, symphonic festival i guess performed parts of it but yeah i always thought it was composed by andrew weber so. okay Interesting. yeah
2: i i i heard i heard you say that but yeah. didn't, i didn't process it yeah. at the time yeah. Interesting. yeah no it was definitely it was abba and tim rice Essentially, uh-huh.
1: I mean, Tim Rice was also a collaborator, a longtime collaborator of, um,
2: of Andrew Lloyd Webber yeah. So
1: that's why I, and Murray had been involved. So all yeah. of those things made me think it was him.
2: But yeah, if you're an ABBA fan, then you know, this song, if you, it, it has a hook, you'll probably really enjoy if you don't remember the tune. So
1: yeah, we're 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 a cool song, especially once you know its context, it oh, makes yeah. a lot of sense.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah, if you if you just hear the song, you know, one and done, you it 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 makes very little sense. You're, you're absolutely right.
1: All right, uh, my next one I'm I'm happy to talk about <laughs> because it's one of my favorite alternative bands of all time. I'm going with "A Girl Like You" by the Smithereens. clash i'm a little uncomfortable talking about the smithereens as a two-hit wonder because they were much more than that not nearly the illustrious career of, of the clash but man the smithereens had their place their debut album especially for you to me is an alternative music masterpiece from top to bottom and it's back on spotify i'm not sure what kind of conflict the band was having with The record company uh, of that original um, record, but for a long time it was not on Spotify. And I noticed it popped back up this week, so very, very cool. So, um, this song is probably their best known song, because, you know, commercially at least, because it was a hit. um, Came out in, uh, like I said, 1989. It went to number 38, so it barely cracked the top 40. And then the second one, do you know what the second one was? Too Much Passion. Too Much Passion, which went to 37 in 1991 so it, it's just kind of bittersweet for me to talk about this because i don't feel these two songs are a really good representation of the smithereens No,
2: and i'm really you want to surprise me is that the house we used to live in did not crack the top 40 right because i heard that and a girl like you almost evenly split on the radio at the time yeah
1: yeah
2: um so i i always assumed that both were hit singles off of Eleven. But,
1: but for me, like In a Lonely Place, Behind the Wall of Sleep, Blood oh, yeah. and Roses, um, Strangers When We Met. Oh, I love that Cigarette. One. I mean, there are so many great songs off that first oh, album. Cigarette especially. I'm
2: Back when I was a smoker, that song would play it. <laughs> right. I, you had to light up. The only other song that's ever had that effect on me as a trigger when I used to smoke was America by Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, right. Yeah, when yeah. When he yeah. says, toss me a cigarette, I think there's one in, a, in the raincoat. I I'd literally... I. I'd, as a smoker, I lit up every damn time I heard that track.
1: Well, it's funny we're we're, we're sharing some some bourbon here during the show, and I noticed it, yesterday I think it was. Anytime shows you how uh, subliminal stuff works. I'll be watching a show, TV show, movie, or whatever, and if someone like breaks out like bourbon or, or whiskey or scotch or something like that, I always pause the
2: movie and I pour my stuff. Do you off. really? Yeah, it's just weird. It's like, yeah. oh yeah that. That sounds good. Yeah, I, I can't say I don't, now that I think about it, especially bourbon's my go-to. So so there are triggers. Yeah, there are, <laughs> without question.
1: Um, so this is something, you know, not that, I mean, obviously I learn a lot when I prepare for these episodes, but this is one I can't believe I did not know or had not come across. And I think you might be surprised, too. Do you know that this song was actually written specifically for a film?
2: A Girl Like You was written for a film?
1: Yes, in fact, the lyrics revealed too much of the plot for the filmmaker, and that is why he did not include it in the movie, because he was afraid that the lyrics would ruin and spoil the film.
2: If that's, <laughs> gotcha. if that's true, then the film shouldn't be hard to figure out, but I cannot, it, it feels like probably a romantic comedy. Yes. It, it, when I'm thinking of the lyrics to A Girl Like You, it could be any and romantic
1: it, it's comedy. not John Hughes, but it would be the other... John Hughes-type director of the 80s that came out with classic movies, like Fast Times at Ridgemont High.
2: Okay, so we're talking about...
1: Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe. Say Anything.
2: This was written for
1: Say Anything? Yes. This was written specifically for a movie, and Pat DiNizio, the lead singer um, and and primary uh, writer for the band, received the script from Cameron Crowe, read the script... Actually, used lines of dialogue from the movie, incorporated into the lyrics. And If you go back, you'll catch them. It's weird. I never thought of this. I never realized it. Wow. And Crow listened to it back, and he said, "Yeah, this this reveals too much of the plot. I need you to change these lyrics." Um, Pat Tanisio said, "No, I'm not." And then Cameron Crowe said, "Well, we're going to cut it from the film." So the band held on to the song until their next album, and they they threw it on Eleven, it became their biggest hit.
2: That just blew my mind. I. Or actually,
1: second because I guess, Too Much Passion went one, one slot higher.
2: But yeah, yeah. That is...
1: is <laughs> so that. Because okay. we associate... I'm not sure where he would have used it in the movie, but we associate Sandy Anything, of course, with In Your Eyes. In Your but, Eyes, yeah. With Peter Gabriel. I'm not sure that's where the song would have fallen.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to imagine, Maybe in, trying to imagine him holding the boombox over his head yeah, and it's the smithereens. Yeah, flying.
1: probably not. Maybe even in the closing credits, but I, I can, you know at the time you would have a song associated with a movie and you'd release the song prior to the movie right. to create buzz about the movie and he didn't want too much of the plot revealed.
2: Very interesting. Yeah. I, I had never never heard that.
1: Here's another surprise. Okay. I didn't know my smithereens as well as I thought I did. Guess who was slated to sing backing vocals on the track because at the end there's a little interplay back and forth with the female right. vocalist. Okay. And it's um, Maria Vidal sang the song in this person's place. Yeah.
2: I'll say anything. Madonna. Madonna was going to Was do the slated call. to do. She was going to do the Echo? The really? Echo,
1: and she just never showed up to the recording. She just blew it off. Oh, I shouldn't say that. She might have had something very important or maybe something tragic. I don't know. But for whatever reason, she didn't show up for the recording session.
2: I cannot even fathom Madonna and Smithereens in the same <laughs> I party.
1: know. That I is know. just so
2: not right <laughs> in I know. my mind.
1: So, like I said, this band has a lot better material. I'll go back to the early catalog, especially the album, especially for you and Green Thoughts, um, just classic, classic records. But that being said, a girl like you is still a cool song, and oh, so it is. is too much passion. Yeah. You know,
2: so I will say when we saw them in Toledo years ago, and it was a it was it was the most intimate venue I've yeah, ever it was seen in a, a concert. Room. Yeah, and I mean we were it's the only time I've ever been. At the stage. I mean, literally.
1: Yeah, that was the closest I'd been yeah, at Yeah, the there
2: time. were not seats. I mean, people were just lounging wherever. And literally. We, it was
1: like a club atmosphere, but yeah. it was in a hotel ballroom. And I
2: remember just walking right up to the stage. I mean, I could have reached out and touched the band. Yeah. I, we were that close. But the one thing that disappointed me was that they did not change the end of A Girl Like You to include Toledo. Oh, that surprised me because they're saying London, Washington. Yeah, yeah. because I I just thought Toledo didn't really. Well, no, but (laughs) most artists, when you have the opportunity to, to insert, you know, the city you're playing in, they they find a way to do it. Smithereens just played it straight and sang the song as is. They also, I will say this about the Smithereens live: it sounds just. It sounded just like the album.
1: Which can be good or bad. Right. Sometimes I like when the band just mixes yeah, I, things up a bit. that's but. true.
2: I and mean, they didn't do anything to, to... But
1: you're right. They're the kind of band that doesn't rely on a lot of studio, studio yeah. trickery.
2: Which I kind of liked. I mean, I was sitting there and th- there was no question they were live. And this is not a band that lip syncs. No. But it, it literally... No, no, they're solid. Yeah, it was the real real In deal. fact, I
1: don't know how what the recording process is. It's possible that they just record... I mean, most recordings are not recorded live, right? They lay down right. separate oh, yeah, tracks yeah. and right. they, they layer yeah. things... Who knows? Maybe they just um, recorded all their stuff live, and that's maybe. why they sound so.
2: I don't know, but it was so close and it was perfect. Yep. No,
1: I remember I, I bootlegged that show with my little uh, mini cassette recorder, and then I made the case with the ticket stub. Do you remember that? I remember that. Yeah. yeah I wonder if I still have that somewhere. Hmm. I'm sure the quality was awful.
2: Oh, <laughs> it was a micro cassette used to record lectures in you know, right. school. So yeah, I'm sure. It, Sure, it was not the best quality. <laughs> quality
1: so that was my big surprise of the week, finding that those two facts.
2: Oh. Yeah, that both of them. just I did not see those coming. That was very cool. Okay, well, my next one. Um, this is the kind of song that we did not include on our criminal uh, episodes because I didn't want to get into heavy uh, material, if you will. We wanted to try and keep the criminal episodes light or as light as possible. Uh, but this one could have fit. And I'm talking about the song Luca by Suzanne Vega. Yes. Uh, It comes from the 1987 album Solitude Standing, which um, was a huge, huge hit on on the the Billboard 200 uh, album charts on the strength of this single. (music) ¶¶ is of course about child abuse. It tells the story of a frightened boy uh, who is forbidden to talk about what he's going through. And on a 1987 Swedish television special, Vega said that a few years earlier, she used to see a group of children playing in front of her building. And there was one of them, she said, whose name was Luca, who seemed a little bit distinctive from the other children. She said she remembered his name and she always remembered his face and she didn't know much about him, but he just seemed Set apart from the the other kids that she would see playing, and his character is what she based the song Luca on in the song. The boy Luca is an abused child. In real life, she said she doesn't think he was. Um, she thinks he was just different. But speaking uh, in other interviews, Vega explained that she she started with the lit- with the title for this song. Uh, Describing how she wrote it, she said it 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 takes her months of kind of fingering it in her. Mind, she said. She uh, while she's walking around or doing something else, it's just like a problem in her mind that goes, that her mind keeps going back to. She said it wiggles. Um, She said it's like you're trying to get the right angle, and once the angle comes, she she said she can write the song in two hours. Luca took two hours to write, but it took months of thinking about it and lining up the shot, in a sense. Uh, Like if you're playing pool, you want to clear the table. This is her metaphor. She says you line it all up, and then you just hit it. You know, and everything clears. She said it's very satisfying, but it takes months months of preparation. Um, she was not sure what the character would say. That was the real issue. She knew that what the character's problem was, but she didn't know how to get the listener involved. She said she wanted it to be from the point of view of uh, the child who was being abused, but the problem was that the person can't say what the problem is. So she really struggled with that. How do you get the problem out if you can't say it? You know, how do you involve the listener? So she decided to have him introduce himself. My name is Luca. I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you. And, and so, therefore, she says she engaged the listener. And she said, uh, she thinks, or rather, she added, I think you've seen me before. And she said, she thinks that's the key when the listener really, really opens up to, to the song. Um, and, you know, she said she draws the listener into this world with very simple, basic information. It then proceeds to state the problem without ever saying what the problem is. And she said that was her problem as a songwriter. How do you give that information without ever giving it? Uh, She says, it's easy to point a finger. It's easy to say child abuse must stop, and everybody knows this. She said, but too often we look away. Um, Vega wrote this song about three years before it was released on her second album. It was written before her debut album, actually, but Vega said it needed some time for it to settle into the bag of songs, quote, unquote. Um, there's a great deal of lyrical dissonance in the song too Uh, the stark story of child abuse I mean it contrasts this is another one where the the melody does not partner with with the lyrics sure Uh, she explained that you know she was aiming at such a complex subject but she was aiming for the simplest line to get there and she said simple melodies happy chords she felt that it made it more accessible because it was such a dark subject so she said she went all out um, but she tried to write it in the language of a child, so that's probably why she thinks it, it worked because it was so accessible. The following year, 10,000 Maniacs released a similar single mm-hmm. um, titled What's the Matter Here? Yep. Uh, very, very similar in theme. Uh, Pat Benatar a few years earlier yeah. had Hell is for Children. Yeah, this is a topic that's shown that showed up quite often in the 80s, actually. Um, I would argue it probably should show up more often in. 2022, but uh, we don't seem to be talking about it in much the same way now. Uh, around the time of writing this, Vega was listening to a lot of Lou Reed's music, and she was impressed by the way he wrote about a violent world. Uh, she had to think of how to, to write about the subject that no one wanted to talk about. So she modeled a lot of the song off of, not off Velvet Underground's song specifically, or Lou Reed's song specifically, but more the, the vibe. Yeah. You know? Um, and uh, she said, one day I was listening to Lou Reed's Berlin album, and the whole thing came out. It started about 2 o'clock. By 4 o'clock, I had the whole song done. Um, so, yeah, it, it's. I remember when this song came out. And it was probably, uh, well, it was 1987. So, what, I was 14, 15. It was probably the first time that I had really thought, truly thought about child abuse. The song really made me think about it, and it was... I don't know. I, I don't know that I'd given much attention to the yeah. issue prior to the release of Luca. Um,
1: Suzanne Vega, for me, is a writer first and a musician second. Right. Her powers of observation are incredible. Of Cur- course, the other single, it was Tom's, Tom's Diner. Tom's Diner, yeah. And... No, that was her sitting in a coffee shop, basically just observing Mm -hmm. things around her. And of course, later it was a dance beat was added to it. It Yeah,
2: DNA added the the dance beat.
1: Um, And this one too, again, the powers of observation, picking out this one child who she saw was kind of isolated from the bunch and then turning it into this song. I mean, she is a writer who puts her poetry to music. That's how I look at her. And the song still holds up. I hadn't heard the song probably in 20 years, hadn't listened to it in about 20 years, and
2: it's a great song. It really is. Yeah. I um, I wasn't going to go with Suzanne Vega originally, but I am so glad I included it because listening to it, it just, it is, it's, it's a beautiful, very haunting melody, but it, you know, the subject matter, again, is so contrasted to... You know, just the chord progressions. I, I, don't, I don't know. The song just kind of blows me away.
1: It's kind of like well, Hell is for Children is one that I always rock out to, and I'm like, I'm rocking out to the song that's about child abuse.
2: Exactly. Like,
1: yeah. <laughs> there's something wrong with this.
2: Yeah. Well, Vega, one last note, she did live on the ground floor of her apartment building, so Luca really did live upstairs from her. She said she finally did meet the boy one day in an elevator, but she has always refused to give any details of their conversation. So... I don't know if that's for privacy on the part of the child or what it may be, probably privacy. But uh, yeah, she did She did meet Luca. Whether or not that was before or after she wrote the song, I don't know, but there you well, go.
1: And it leads to other songs later on that weren't specifically about child abuse, but like I'm thinking, like Jeremy from Pearl Jam.
2: Oh yeah, yeah.
1: Now, a band's taking these these sensitive topics and turn them into hit songs.
2: Right, yeah, which shows you the... The powerful influence that music has. I yep. mean, it may not solve problems, but it brings the it brings the topics to conversation. You know, very uncomfortable things that we otherwise probably would not discuss. So,
1: yeah, I mean, a lot of musicians. I don't know. I mean, everyone has their process, right? I'm, you know, obviously Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Um, they write, they collaborate, but they don't. You know, the lyrics come first, and John writes something around them. And so, in many ways. Bernie Taupin is a, is a writer first, obviously, but I think of like obviously Dylan, and and then Springsteen to an extent, um, they're, they're writers first and their music is almost secondary. Springsteen's not maybe as much because his you know, but Dylan definitely. And then I think of him like Billy Joel. I think not not to not to criticize Joel, but I think a lot of times lyrics are secondary. I think he has his composition. Oh yeah, he looks for something interesting. If he can if he can make it a topical like you know allentown or goodnight saigon he'll do that but i think the music comes first for someone like joel but i love when when that writer just has that eye and they can see things and put them into an emotional package that we can experience
2: yeah i agree um you know we were we were speaking of wally pleasant um makes me think of the song Sons of Bob Dylan. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when he's going through all the musicians, Tom Petty was the next Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen was the next yeah. Um yeah, no, they all they all do have their, you know, individual pathways to, to getting a, a single cut and made.
1: Someone like Petty, I think has a good balance.
2: Yeah, yeah, I would agree. But uh Camp yeah. would be another one. Yeah. They're on the same vein. So
1: All right. My next one. It's Yacht Rock time, ladies and gentlemen. I chose Steal Away by Robbie Dupree.
2: It is such a good song.
1: From 1980, from the self-titled Robbie Dupree record. classic number made it to number six on the top 40. His other hit was Hot Rod Hearts that went to number 15 the same year. I have no recollection of that song whatsoever. Can't say I remember it at all, no. Now, I'm preparing for this, um, and I've heard this song a million times, on you know, just growing up and then on on Yacht Rock radio, which we listen to a lot in the summer. And I'm, I'm about to write something about how Michael McDonald, who is the patron saint of Yacht Rock, I mean, I started a list. I mean, we're talking dozens of songs, not counting the Doobie Brothers and his solo that he's appeared as backing um, support for all these other songs. And Christopher Cross, another great example. And I was about to say, here's another Michael McDonald. And I'm listening to it and I went, no, that's that's not Michael McDonald. It sounds like Michael McDonald. And I'm like, why? And then I realized this is almost the same song as What a Fool Believes by Doobie Brothers. So I started doing my research, and I'm not alone. Uh, this song is widely criticized as being a cheap ripoff of What a Fool Believes. So I challenge you, next time, listen to Steal Away, and especially as you get into the pre-chorus and the chorus, yeah, it's it's pretty close. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. I'm going
2: to have to... And
1: that's why I expected Michael McDonald to just start singing uh, the the backing vocals.
2: I'm going to have to... Yeah. I, I I mean, I can almost here I'm thinking of the two sides. I can almost hear it but it's not quite especially
1: in the bridge listen to the bridge of uh, Steal Away and, and yeah it's what a full blaze
2: interesting okay
1: <laughs> same vibe same rhythm everything um, despite failing to chart after 1980 he had his two hits then Dupree continued to record albums through 2012 really so he was a steady artist I'm assuming he has a strong following that's awesome I didn't, I didn't know that wow Um, The song was most recently featured in season three of one of my favorite current TV shows, Better Call Saul. And, of course, on Yacht Rock, which is a huge thing now. Right. Which I love, because there are all those guilty pleasure songs that I can get away with listening to.
2: You know, Ben... My, my son ben he, he was he brought up an interesting he loves yacht rock on serious mm-hmm. that's one that's the station he listens to he's that's your
1: venn diagram so in the car you can yeah, listen to that yeah, yeah.
2: It's, it's kind of crazy oh well, he also introduces me to a lot of cool songs that i've like when we do our uncharted one of the tracks is going to be something he introduced me to cool um I, he, he has a very eclectic very interesting taste in music but he loves yacht rock which he's all of 18 you know yeah. it, it, in my mind yacht rock should be the farthest thing from what an 18 yeah, year but listening to it's,
1: it's it's melody yeah and melody is lost so much in today's music it
2: has and he 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 has a real appreciation he's actually written songs he, he he's one of those kids he can sit at the piano and he'll hear something and he can play it and he can read the sheet music i mean he's ben is ben is a very talented musician joel's the drummer but ben is the one that has an ear for music but um we, we he got on this topic the other day listening to Yacht Rock and he loves when they introduce the station Yacht Rock you know, he gets to, I think that's probably why he tuned to that, to that station anyway uh, initially but he said you know how long has Yacht Rock been a thing and I said I don't remember hearing the phrase or the subgenre of yacht rock until maybe two or three years ago.
1: No, I think it might have been. I'm I'm not 100 percent positive on this, but I think Jimmy Fallon. I don't watch Jimmy Fallon, but I think he had a segment on his show called Yacht Rock, and, and I he, think I think uh, Bobby Dupree actually performed okay. the song on there. I think he would invite like Christopher Cross and those types of artists, and okay. he, I think he coined that term.
2: Yeah, because Ben asked, and I said, you know, it, it, he he made me think about it. You know, because now I just take yacht rock as a as a subgenre of pop music. But then I he asked, and I really thought about it. and I'm like, before 2015, it was soft rock. Yeah, it was it was, it was soft 70s rock, gold. 70s exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's all it is. It's mellow 70s with the occasional 80s song thrown in. Yep. And I'm like, when the hell did yacht rock become yeah. a thing? No, it's, it's
1: brilliant though. You
2: know, it's yeah.
1: <laughs> now, I think I think we are. And I'm maybe thinking out of hope more than reality, but I think we are poised to see a new movement in music from the young, you know, gen Zers that are now coming up with the popularity of Yacht Rock, with the popularity of shows like Stranger Things, I think we were poised to see a breakthrough of new, more melodic pop songs hitting the charts in the vein of the late 70s, early 80s.
2: That would be nice. It would. Um, I would love some 10cc or some bread, you know? I mean, it's not my go-to. I'm I'm not quite that soft in my musical leanings. But they were some of the most beautiful songs.
1: Yeah. and it won't be. It probably won't top the charts. I think hip hop has enough of a hold right now for a while. But in the alternative music that starts to come out, yeah, I mean, you already saw it a decade ago or more. Gosh, almost two decades ago with bands like The Killers, which right. really had that retro '80s sound. But I think you're going to see that again in a very heavy way. Yeah,
2: I'm, and I would credit Stranger Things. I mean, I think that has done more for the zeitgeist than probably anything going right now well
1: even even river Cuomo in um this is a while ago i think it was on the red album song called heart songs where he talks about the songs that really inspired him and one of them was like hungry heart by by bruce springsteen but if i remember correctly he cites some early you know yacht rock type songs that you wouldn't expect weezer to be inspired by and i you know he's a gen xer he grew up when we grew up so of course in the late 70s he would have heard these songs and it would have made an impact on him
2: no it makes sense yeah my number eleven. Here we go. I went with "Swing Out Sister," which uh, I've always loved the song. It's one that I've forgotten about many times, but then I hear it and it comes back. And I, I it, it's not one that has just been lying lying dormant, you know. Right. It, it it comes back to me every every few years. I think of the song and I don't. It, know it had why. a ten thousand maniacs vibe to it, very much, which I really like. Yeah, very much. Uh, the name of the song is "Breakout." It hit number six in 1986. Only other top forty hit by Swing Out Sister was Twilight World. Don't remember that. That hit, hit number thirty seven in nineteen eighty seven. I have no memory of that second song at all. I don't. I didn't listen to it before today's show, and I, I can't say that I remember a thing about it. And when,
1: um, when Alan, in, you know, shared his playlist before when we were doing um, getting ready for this. Podcast. Uh, I didn't know this, but he had also shared a playlist of all the B, the second. Yeah, the number twos. And, and I'm going through these artists and I got to the fifth one. I'd never heard of the second. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? Our audience, they yeah. want to hear the songs they know. Not the, and you're like, dude, you're looking at the wrong playlist. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I sent you the number
1: And this twos. was one. I'm like, you're not going to choose
2: Breakout? You're going to choose... Yeah, no. <laughs> I was always choosing Breakout. I I didn't realize that I had sent... I don't know if I sent you both or if I just sent you the number twos by accident. But um, yeah, no. I, you you texted me. I'm like, what are you talking
1: about? <laughs> of course, you're I'm... like, these were all hits. I'm like, I had never heard of any of yeah.
2: them. Yeah. No, I was just mixed up there. Uh, Swing Out Sister was formed in 1985 in Manchester, England uh, by keyboardist Andy Connell, uh, who used to be in... Uh, certain ratio i guess uh, another english band i'm not familiar with them and drummer martin jackson he was formerly of the magazine which again i I don't know that band either uh they were joined by singer corin drury who was previously a fashion designer and they got themselves a two single deal which was convenient because they had two singles that hit (laughs) the top 40 uh the first one I, i that was kind of tongue-in-cheek. But the first single that they released was one titled Blue Mood. And um, Corin Drury describes on Remember the 80s, the pressure she was under to write the lyrics for the second one. Uh, The second single, she said it had to be a hit or they were going to get dropped and there was a lot of pressure on her to get it right. Andy was off on tour with A Certain Ratio. Martin was up in Manchester. She said she was in London and they kept phoning and asking if she had finished the lyrics to the song And she got really worried because she wanted it to be perfect. She wanted it to be just right. And the day before the deadline, uh, their A&R man phoned up and asked if she had finished. And when she said no, he said, oh, come on, it's only writing a bloody nursery rhyme. But at that stage, she didn't have any ideas. And she just confused herself. And she couldn't discuss it with Andy and Martin because they were off doing their respective things. So she was just sitting uh, in this squat position and, and... Basically, with a microphone plugged into the back of a stereo, trying different things, she ended up with like half an hour, and the you know the track was due to pick up uh, the tapes. So, um, you know maybe it was the lack of time she says that just forced the best thing out. She just had to record something there and then, and she thought if anyone had seen how it all came about, they would never have taken the song seriously. Um, the video was inspired by Corinne Drury's previous career. I don't know if you remember the, the video, but they're in a fabric. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah a yeah, clothes yeah, factory. Yeah, 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 a clothes factory, and
2: they're playing, pulling the fabric out off of the reels. Um, and it features her as a fashion designer in, in the video, designing and making her own dress and then modeling it. Uh, the song earned a Grammy nomination for Best Pop Vocal Performance by a group or duo, did not win. This was to be Swing Out Sisters' biggest hit in both the UK and the US. And after a few years, their career uh, tailed off in those territories. However, in Japan, Swing Out Sister has proven incredibly popular. Hmm. They have continued to record, which I thought they were dead and buried, but they're still together. They're still recording. And everything they release in Japan, it just soars to the top of the charts over there apparently. Uh, in 97, they won the Grand Prix Award, which is the Japanese equivalent of a Grammy for Best International Single for the song Now You're Not Here. But they had this huge cult following in Japan. Swing mean, out sisters, they have never lost popularity uh, over there. So found that interesting.
1: Kind of like Cheap Trick. There are a lot of bands that yeah, really hit in Japan before they became huge in America. Yeah.
2: It, I, I'm always fascinated how that happens, though. You know, how does a band just randomly pick up an audience in a foreign country to to the extent that it funds their it fun it funds their, you know, continuation, you know, to continue contributing and writing and recording. It's it's I don't know how if that's chance, if it's you know, i have always been curious about that.
1: I'm sure it marketed, you know, in a way that people yeah. in that Asian market felt that people would like. I don't know.
2: I don't know. It's pretty cool. But yeah, I've always loved this song so Yeah, this was one of the first ones that I knew I was going to include once I learned they were, in fact, a 2 I always thought they were a one-hit wonder, but they're not.
1: Great. Great song. Holds up, too. Really does. All right. That takes us to our last song, number 24 for the playlist:
2: 23. 23. I have 24. You you go first. Oh, that's right. You go first inside B.
1: math is hard yes no number
2: 23 <laughs> it is hard yes.
1: and I chose I love you by climax blues band from 1980 from their album flying the flag I distinctly remember hearing this song on the radio sometime in the early 80s and trying to track down who recorded it. So I listened to Q92, which was a pop station here in the Canton area, and they kind of had this canned format where they would play two new songs and then they would t- play an, an older song. In fact, first time I heard Stairway to Heaven was on Q92. They never identified... The third song. They would they would say the name of the first two that were on the charts, but they would, I guess they just assumed everybody would know the classic track. Right. But as a kid, I did not. And this was one that they would play as that third um, song. And I had no idea who did it. Of course, we didn't have the internet, right? So I got out my Joel Whitburn Top 40 book that I talked about last week, and I just went through every single page until I found any type of song that had, like, I Love You in the title. And I narrowed it down, and somehow, I figured out that it was by Climax Blues
2: Band. I I find it amazing that you were able to track down the artist and the song when the title is simply, I Love You. Well,
1: because the other I Love You songs I think I I knew, right? Right. Or identified the band. Like I could tell, even if I didn't know the song, I could tell by the band that that wasn't the same band I was listening to. Okay. So by process of elimination, somehow I came to that conclusion.
2: That makes sense. I'm just thinking of all the phrases to try and look up a band's name. I love you is like the worst way you're going to <laughs> well, find. Well, how many songs can you think of that are actually called I Love You? Well, it's not so much how many songs I can find that are actually titled that. It's how many songs at that age I would have thought oh, right. were sure. titled sure. Yeah. I Love You. know, yeah. In my mind, that's like every ballad. At age 10. Right, right. So. The band first
1: hit the charts in 1976 with their sole disco number, Couldn't Get It Right, which I had never heard, and I listened to it, and I didn't recognize it. But it went to number three on Billboard. Four years later, and then they hit the charts for the last time with I Love You, which reached number 12.
2: I have always loved this song. Yeah. It is, in simplest terms, probably the most beautiful dedication that you can sing or play or you know, dance to with your wife. Yeah. In fact, I, I actually I know this just DJing. In the nineteen eighties it was the number one pick for first dance between well, makes husband sense. and wife. Yeah. Um which it, if you know the lyrics, yeah it makes perfect sense. So
1: I I love the George Harrison kind of inspired string bending technique displayed during both there's two little guitar solos in this song. Right which just is really cool as a Beatles fan. Um, The band kept going despite their lack of chart success. That seems to be a theme here today. Released in their most recent album, ready for this? 2019. Really? Yes. Climax. They used to be the Chicago Climax Blues Band originally, and then they changed it. But they're, but they're, they're English. They're not American.
2: You know, a lot of these bands were learning that, you know, they're still recording. Their last hits were, or last albums were eight. 2018, 2019, I'm wondering how many of them COVID finally put an end to.
1: Oh, I'm sure, especially bands of this age. Of
2: this age, yeah. It makes me wonder, because 2019, I mean, that is that is just incredible yeah, to yeah. me that they were still releasing material.
1: So, yeah, the, the, the song is a bit sappy, right? Not quite Dan Hill sappy, but sappy. Um, but it reminds me of a girl I liked in elementary school, and I don't remember who or what, but I have an emotional connection to it. And so I will permit myself to treasure
2: this song forever in elementary,
1: yeah, when the crushes started, you, yeah, you oh, yeah, you'd yeah. start writing notes, and you hoped that they wouldn 't laugh it in your in yeah. your face you'd
2: pass the notes behind you and hope that you know Gosh, no one else saw it that was the worst suspense Te- like I, I, text, texting in the, in the 1980s. No, know <laughs>
1: no i I would spend like all night writing this note, perfectly worded, and I would just get really nervous and i I'd, and I'd think, okay, when can I slip it to this girl? you know this is probably fourth, fifth grade, right. Or, or so I would see her, you know, in class or in the cafeteria and I'd hand it to her. And then it was the big waiting. Oh, yeah. It's like, how is she going to react? Is she going to write me back? If she does write me back, what is she going to say? And I remember in one case... Um, I, I read a lot as a kid, and I, but sometimes I didn't really understand. I knew big words, but I didn't understand how to use them or apply them correctly. Right. Okay. I would hear them in a certain context and think they meant something that they didn't. So here's a good example. There was a girl I really liked um, in Woodland on the playground, and I wrote her this note and I said something like, Hey, will you be my girlfriend? I'm desperate. Because <laughs> I thought desperate meant like really passionate and like I really, I really, really. And so when she tore it up in front of me on the playground and never talked to me again, I was a little confused.
2: I'm desperate.
1: I'm now sorry. I know. Wow.
2: <laughs>
1: wow. I mean, I, I guess I, 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 met more along the lines of like, I, I desperate, I'm like, you would say I'm desperately in love with you. Right. Yeah. But to say like, I'm desperate means like, <laughs> Hey man, I'm really I'm, scraping the bottom I'm, of the I'm barrel. Here. Like,
2: yeah, that's great. <laughs> that is hilarious. Um, did you ever do the boxes do you like me check i'm no? sure i probably did i don't <laughs> you know? remember
1: specifically doing that oh, but man. uh
2: and what what used to get me about passing notes is you always had that one person who did the fancy oh yeah yeah you know, the girls they, knew how to yeah they, they knew how to make these beautiful designs when they would fold the notes and i'm like half the time i couldn't figure out how the hell to open it you
1: tuck it tuck it in the corner yeah, so it open it up, just and, oh yeah and yep. then, of course, God forbid, your note got intercepted by the teacher. Oh, yeah. Or you had one of those dick teachers that would read it in front of everybody.
2: <laughs> never happened to me. But, no, I didn't either. But, um, but I've heard horror stories. Yeah, I mean, there was one girl. I don't remember who it was. She could turn every note into a heart. She would fold it so that it was a perfect heart. And I never... I, I was more fascinated by the, by the origami <laughs> than right. I was with the words inside. Yeah. Oh, it's the
1: worst was when I figured out I liked a girl on, on, on the... No, that's what... The worst was when I would give a note, like, on a Friday afternoon. And I have to wait all weekend until Monday morning to see. Like, I stopped doing that. I would time my note passing so that it didn't go over a that, weekend. That's when you give
2: it in the morning, so you have right. an answer by the afternoon before right. you get on the
1: bus to call. If you're lucky, you got a phone number, and then that was a whole other thing, right? Calling. Oh, yeah. Is, is the parent going to answer? My gosh, kids have no idea oh, they don't. the stress.
2: Because when a parent. Well, back then, too, you could call 60 times and hang up when someone answered, <laughs> and, and they never knew who the hell called. Until sars 69 know. came in. Yeah, SAR 69, right. Okay. All right, your last uh, one. The memories. <laughs> so here is my final song for this two part episode. I went with Level 42 and their number seven hit, Something About You from 1985. Mm-hmm.
3: Suffer so
2: Their big single uh, was from a year later. It was titled "Lessons in Love" that hit number twelve. Um, I did recognize "Lessons in Love" when I listened to it, um, but it, it definitely is far more obscure. Uh, "Something About You" is what they're best known for. The band wasn't sure that this song was good enough for the album. Actually, it had a more commercial sound and, and glossier production than their previous jazz funk recordings. They were actually. A jazz fusion band, hmm. which I had never known I, I know nothing about Level 42, but then when I read that, I went back and listened. They're pretty damn impressive. I mean, the jazz fusion, the funk, it, it's it is some good stuff. Um, but something about you, it, it became their first and their biggest hit in America. Uh, the album has now sold over three million copies worldwide, and it has had a, it had a seventy two week seventy two week stay in the U.S. charts. On a hot one hundred, wow. Um, this song was acknowledged at the 1991 BMI Awards for 1 million U.S. performances. Hmm. Uh, bassist Mark King's percussive slap bass technique provided the driving groove for this and other Level 42 hits. Um, he's known as the man with the golden thumb. I guess plays the stand-up bass. Uh, he's such a good bass player that his hands were actually insured in the late 80s for a fortune. Oh, well. uh, King appeared as a carnival master like. Phantom of the Video, in the expensive music video for this song. Uh, he reprised this role for Level 42's song, Leaving Me Now, which was also on on the same album. Uh, the the band took its name from the Douglas Adams book, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. 42 was the meaning of yeah, life.
2: That's why they chose Level 42. Yeah, uh, The answer to life, the universe, and everything so uh couldn't find much information on it that, that was about it but i i've always loved the song and then i went learned they were a jazz you know jazz fusion band and man i've been blown away listening to some of their back catalog that i've you know, i knew nothing about them so awesome that, that is 24 tracks that, that rounds we it have out. to sequence yeah we will be right, right back. This. yeah right we'll be right back folks all right we're back and we have an order All right, so here we go. We begin our side A with She's a Beauty by The Tubes. That goes into Talking in Your Sleep by The Romantics, followed by Train in Vain," Stand by Me by The Clash, Take on Me by Aha, Brand New Lover by Dead or Alive, that goes into Walk the Dinosaur by Was Not Was, A Girl Like You by The Smithereens, Twilight Zone by Golden Earring, One Night in Bangkok by Murray Head, Trouble by Lindsay Buckingham, Voices Carry by Toots Tuesday, and we end Side A with Don't Dream It's Over by Crowded House. Side B, we go hard. We begin with Rocky Like a Hurricane by The Scorpions. That leads into Come On, Feel the Noise by Quiet Riot. Then Buffalo Stance by Nina Cherry. Party All the Time by Eddie Murphy into Something About You by Level 42. No More Words by Berlin. Steal Away by Robbie Dupree. Tenderness by General Public. Can't We Try by Dan Hill and Von Shepard. I Love You by the Climax Blues Band. Luca by Suzanne Vega. And we end our two-part episode, Side B, with Breakout by Swing Out Sister.
1: Great collection of music there. It really is. I'll just have to skip the two. The, the two, <laughs> the, yeah. the, the two dance songs. Skip away. Yeah. No, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll give them a second chance as I listen through. So, wow. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, folks, this takes us up to um, what traditionally would be our last episode of the season, which is Halloween, although we are in discussions on perhaps extending the season
2: a little bit through Christmas. Yeah, well, we always come back for the Christmas, the holiday special. So we're thinking maybe we just go through December this, this time around. Yeah. i um, think uh, thinking it's going to happen, but we, we shall see. Have but we'll be back next
1: for the, for the Halloween episode. Are we going to go with Candy? I think we should. Okay.
2: Uh, we've done scary. We've done fun. What we haven't done or paid any attention to is the reason we go house to house to begin with.
1: I'm just so. afraid that I used some candy songs on the fun one.
2: You only used one.
1: But just the bow, bow, bow wow, wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that was okay. the
2: only candy song. Which is really and,
1: about sex anyway. But anyway. Well,
2: <laughs> really, if you want to, well, they're all going to be about sex. <laughs> but you can use it again. I, right. Halloween, Well, you get a free pass, you know.
1: We'll see if I can find enough. Well.
2: Yeah. Oh, there are plenty of candy songs. Um, and it'll be interesting. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, so that's the next next right. time out. Great. So, All right. Uh, again, our sponsor, Jay Callahan Painting. If you have painting needs in Northeast Ohio, the greater Cleveland area, look her up on Facebook. You can't go wrong with Jay Callahan Painting. Good friend of ours, and she does incredible work.
1: And please consider giving us a review if you're a fan of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Feel free to reach out. We've been receiving lots of communications from listeners, which we love. Our email address is podcast at com. You can join our Facebook group at Gen X Mixtape. You can also join our group. We have a group, a little smaller group of listeners where Alan does his top five. Every week do you do top five or more than once a um, week, don't you?
2: Well, I, I've been I've been really slacking because there's been so much going on um yeah, but I mean, you once know, but, in a while, you throw that but, out there, it's good. Yeah, well, I, I do it at least a couple times each week, but I'm supposed to be doing it every day, No, one, yeah, Monday through Friday, and I've just, I've been kind that's of... That's unrealistic, you're gonna run out of topics. And, I, and yeah, and <laughs> that's been part of the problem. I'm sitting here, like, I, here's the thing, You, I should never run out, there are enough topics to last a lifetime, but I'm like, I, I go to create it and I blank, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, but uh, we, we have a strong presence on Facebook. We are up to, we're just shy of 25K, 25,000 followers now. Um, So yeah, please join in the fun on our Facebook page. Lots Uh, lots of memes. Yep. Twitter and Instagram, we do have, uh, you can find us there. Don't pay quite as much attention to those simply because Gen X lives on Facebook. Yep. But we had the Facebook group as well. You can leave a review not only for uh, the podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. You can leave us a review on Facebook. Um, I think we have five five reviews. Most, oh, awesome. most people uh, don't don't you know pay much attention to that, but again, you know it it, it does push us up in the recommendations yep. uh, for anything Gen X for people to find us. Um, yeah, it, it's we have grown, and we want to thank each and every one of you, the listeners, because we could not be doing what we do. Uh, with such success without your help. So, yeah, it's a lot more fun when people are listening. It really is, yeah. <laughs> we were actually at one time thinking about calling it quits, and then suddenly the listeners found us. So yeah. now it's fun again.
1: Well, I think uh, the cross promotion helps. I, I'd like to do some more of those in the upcoming season. Oh, absolutely. Um, work with some of the people we worked with in the past, as well as maybe find some new people to do yeah. an episode with.
2: No, I absolutely agree.
1: All right, well, that's all for this week. Hot Fun, Cool Punk. Ah, we did, we didn't title the episode. Oh, we you stopped me mid closing.
2: I did. I put. Well, right.
1: We always forget. This. You're right. We always do. So what should we call it? I don't know. I mean, it's two at wonder. So it's going to be a little bit. Is there?
2: Ooh, love me two times. There we go. The doors. The doors. Love it. There we go. Love me two times. That was good. Yeah. Maybe that just came to you. Well, I had that? to think of something with two. Yeah, but that in the was, like, that was two times. That two. was that was brilliant. <laughs> that
1: was okay. All right, now, that's all for this week on Cool Punk. Even if it's old junk, another mix of memories awaits next week. But for now... Oh, well, an uh, encore episode next week. A new episode in two weeks. You stopped me Mid, mid-closing. <laughs> I did. I did.
2: <laughs> all right, so once more, uh, my turn. Press pause, lift the needle, hit eject. We will see you on the flip side.
0: Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi, mixtape. Memorex and TDK, getting music out there the old-fashioned way. Making the greatest hits of one day, mixtape. Phonograph and dual cassette, before you can get everything on the internet. But some things ain't made it there yet, mixtape. Line in, line out, if you don't have a line, hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine, here's an accidental slice of time. Dusty. and sometimes when we want to start everything just falls apart driving real late delta 88 45 on a side then I'm through the state no ipod shuffle you know your fate Mix. Compiled by a friend, amateur DJing With no concern for what format's playing It was more about what the songs were saying Mixtape Got some Merle Haggard and old George Jones Someone yelling in the background I thought I heard a phone But it's nice when you're all alone To have a mixtape Line in, line out, if you don't have a line, hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine, there's an accidental slice
3: of time.